Welcome to Share Public Health, the Midwestern Public Health Training Center's podcast, connecting you to public health topics, issues, and colleagues throughout our region and the country, highlighting that we all share in public health. Thank you for tuning in to Building Health Equity, the Institute for Public Health Practices series highlighting health equity practice throughout Iowa. Over the course of the series, we will be inviting speakers to dive deeper into their experiences and health equity practice to serve as a learning enrichment opportunity for health department staff and anyone interested in building health equity. As a heads up, these podcasts have been reformatted from the original Building Health Equity webinar series recordings. Welcome to the fifth installment of Building Health Equity webinar series. Um, today's topic is food access equity, giving everyone a seat at the table. I'm Tricia Kitzman. I am a program coordinator with the Institute for Public Health Practice at the University of Iowa College of Public Health. I will now invite our guest speakers to introduce themselves. If you could give us your background, how did you get involved or get um, interested in this area of work? And what do you currently do at your organization? And Nikki, we'll kick it off with you. Okay, great. Uh, my name is Nikki Ross, uh, and I am the executive director of Table to Table. We are a food rescue organization in Johnson County, Iowa. And I've worked in uh, nonprofit social services for about 15 years. Um, I've worked uh, with the Women's Empowerment Program and supported women in transitional housing, um, English as a second language programs, and some youth programs. I say all of that to say I've been with Table to Table for about five years. And the one commonality that all of the programs I've been involved in has been access uh, to food. Um, and every group I've ever worked with, this has been a challenge, which should pretty much tell you how big of a problem it is. <laughs> um, I think I answered all the questions. Marlene, do you want to go? Yes, thanks, Nikki. Uh, hi, everyone. It's so good to see everyone here for this great conversation. My name is Marlene Mendoza. So I will be speaking on behalf of the work that we are involved with LULAC, stands for League of United Latin American Citizens. Uh, but personally for myself, I am a business owner and I am the executive director of Mendoza Consulting. Uh, so it's my own uh, policy consulting firm that just picked up uh, this year. Uh, my background before I launched my consulting business is I worked in policy uh, in DC, uh, ranging from public health to uh, you know, mental health around boys and young women of color. Uh, a lot of around uh, a topic called opportunity youth, which is uh, young people between the ages of 14 to 26 that are not in school and not working. So any type of policies that help them get reconnected to workforce or get reconnected to uh, education and become active members in their community, um, as well as anything around workforce development, not only for young people, but um, for adults as well. And very similar to Nikki, I did a lot of work in the state of Iowa, in DC, and I still engage with a lot of clients um, from all over different states. Uh, work with different departments, state and local. And the thing that always comes up is access to food as one of the key root things as to why it is that a child, for example, um, does not participate at school, has high truancy rates, to anything from mental health, uh, not being nourished, having extreme anxiety. So it just goes on and on. And it's one of those things that if we can find ways to help folks reach that first level of security, access to food, um, it can really make a difference in a lot of these other policy uh, issues that I've been working on. So that's my background professionally. For how I got involved in this work is um, in my spare time, I'm a part of the executive board for LULEC Council in Iowa City called Council 308. So LULEC is a nationwide initiative. It is one of the oldest civil rights organizations in the nation to represent and be one of many collective voices for the Latino community. In the state of Iowa, we're very active. We have over 16 councils um, across the state. Your city most likely probably has a Lula Council. So the one that I will be speaking to um, specifically is the one in Iowa City. So that's how I got involved in the work. And it really began when we had the derecho storm around 2020, uh, when we started realizing just the huge gap in food insecurity that we had just here in, in the city and getting people food because at the time the storm had caused um, um, blackouts. And so people needed uh, to find ways to get uh, food. And then that just rolled into what we have now and what we're trying to build, which we'll talk about a little bit here. 
Um, but I'm going to hand it over now to Luke. Thanks. Uh, my name is Luke Elzinga. I am the Communications and Advocacy Manager at DMARC, which stands for the Des Moines Area Religious Council. We are an interfaith organization that's been around for 70 years, and our mission is working together to meet basic human needs. So the primary way we've done that for the past 46 years is through our food pantry network. Um, we work with 15 different food pantries. We have uh, a mobile food pantry program, and we also have a home delivery program. Um, and then in my role, I'm also doing a lot of advocacy work, um, especially around the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, SNAP. Um, and I also serve on the board of the Iowa Hunger Coalition, which is an advocacy statewide organization in Iowa. Well, welcome. Thank you guys for taking time out of your busy schedules to share your expertise with us today. So I'm gonna kick it off with the first question and I'll kind of leave this as a round robin, so feel free to jump in. Um, what does equity food access really mean or equitable, I guess I should say, food access really mean? What does it look like from your perspective and what you see within the organizations and the work that you have done? Luke, do you want to go first? Yeah, yeah, I can go for it. Um, I think to, to me, equitable food access means having access to the food you want, when you want it, where you are. Um, and so there's a level of geographic access, but also economic access. Um, so I guess what it, what it looks like to me is um, having grocery stores that are open in all areas of our community um, that have you know expanded hours, lower prices for nutritious food, which is not really what we have right now, culturally appropriate food um, available, not having to drive to get the food you need, more weekend and evening hours at food pantries and other types of greater access points, lower barrier points, things like community fridges, little free pantries, things like that, um, an abundance of community gardens, and having the ability to access land to grow food. So that was kind of a big list, but I was thinking before this, and it's, it's probably much bigger list than that, too. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, um, Luke, you uh, kind of said a strong foundation there. So I'm just going to add on to uh, what you mentioned. Some key points is uh, a lot of times we think that just having access to just food for a lot of these populations is, oh, well, you have what you need. Uh, but in reality, not just having access to food doesn't mean you have access to healthier food. And that's a, a big thing that I have uh, had conversations with community members is that although they'll have access to food or certain food is cheap enough to buy uh, the biggest thing is uh, childhood obesity. And they notice that although that they are working on the clock, they're doing their best to feed their kid. The one thing that's always a top of mind is learning education around what is healthier food options, how they can change uh, certain habits within their family, understanding that they have to do it first before the children can uh, adopt those healthy habits. Um, you know, having um, access to after school, some form of after school, if the kids are in after school program um, to healthier food options as well. Uh, so really just having not only culturally relevant food, but food that they want and need that uh, oftentimes tends to be healthier, which is tends to be more expensive uh, for them under budget, or maybe the food pantry might not have access to certain foods that they need. Yeah, that was a great list and addition. Um, I don't have too much to add, except for what, you know, in preparation for this question, one of the things I, I wrote was, you know, the question was, what does equitable food access mean and what does it look like? And we got a lot of really concrete things and all of those things have so much more about it. Like, you know, the transportation aspect and the culturally appropriate aspect and like everything that goes into making that possible. But table to table, we recover food that is still edible from, you know, companies and organizations and, and it's still edible, it's good. And we get it to people who can eat it. So that has me thinking on a system level and I just, thought it would be good to start with the question that is, why do we accept the idea that people should only have access to food if they deserve it and pay for it? <laughs> and like, I do think we would be remiss if we don't like 
we have to think about that from a system level because why are there food deserts like and there's no transportation you know because the idea is there are not people in those areas who can who will it's not um profitable you know because like the idea is like people in those neighborhoods like won't buy the food or they have they have less access to financial resources so why would you put it there you know but that is also part of the system of like why why food we need it to live and so i that's really the thing what does um equitable food access mean i think ultimately it means changing the way we think about food as a resource and that food is a resource that we all contribute to and and the worst part is the people who contribute to it to our food system day to day the folks on the front line they're the ones seeking their access the resources at food pantries and stuff we go into a grocery store and collect 700 pounds of food that's perfectly edible to eat and the person who handed it over to me comes to the food bank the next day to access that food because they are not paid enough so that's my two cents thank you guys and thank you nikki i think one of the things that we probably all can agree on it's it's not just a food access issue, right? It starts much bigger than that, um, especially if we start thinking about going upstream on what is causing the food insecurity um, and food access issues. Um, it's definitely not necessarily, for lack of a better word, it's not access to food, right? We have food. It's just not everyone has the same um, access to it or means to get it. Um, the food's here. It's just, it's not necessarily equitable for folks to be able to access it. So thank you for bringing up the fact that it is bigger. It's bigger than just what we're seeing on our day-to-day -day basis. There's a lot more issues upstream versus just the access issue. Luke, Marlene, do you have anything else to add to that I, before I go to the next question? Okay, perfect. What are some of the major factors currently driving food insecurity in the communities you work with, or at least from the perspective that you're seeing? So I can first speak to my experience um, when I was out uh, in the East Coast. Um, so uh, folks on the call might be familiar with this policy, uh, but public charge has been something that's been around before Trump. So that started out in the Clinton era. Now, what would cause or call, uh, make you public charge was something that things that were very uh, uh, minor, nothing like accessing SNAP, for example. So what I experienced is that within the Latino community and how I've been working with them, in general, it is harder to for folks to accept that they need help um, and have to go and access things for free. There is not for everyone, but there is this overlying type of stigma of you shouldn't be asking uh, for public services or help. So we had to work a lot around saying, hey, everyone goes through a hard time. You know, it's not just a, a stigma saying that if you're getting these things, it's because you're not working harder or anything like that. So we did have to work on a lot of uh, mindsets on changing the way that people saw getting access to food. And I think that goes back to Nikki's original point about changing the way that we think of food as a resource, um, which makes folks sometimes think like, oh, I don't wanna wait in line in a food bank or they're gonna think that I'm not working or that I'm just not doing anything or being provider. So that was one of the things originally that we would always have to deal with. The second thing was that when Trump was in office, there was a change in policy regarding public charge and what caused you to be public charge that could risk deportation um, so it made it really hard for mixed, mixed status families to even receive government resources, including SNAP. So around 2016, when this change in public charge happened, we started seeing a huge decline in SNAP enrollment for families that qualified because they could, but they had a person in their family that was mixed status, right? So what we did around that time is we did a huge uh, campaign where, uh, where we were just trying to send information to let folks know like, hey, you still technically, you can qualify. Don't let this, uh, you know, scare you away. And what happened is that there was so much, so much information, so many things were in the air that most folks even said, you know what, I'm just not going to touch any public resources, which was super damaging to at the time when people, you're already in need of help and now you're not touching anything in, in because you're afraid that you might be uh, deported or someone will say this or that you will count as public charge or um, your residency card won't get renewed. So there was a lot of fear in general. Um, and a lot of it was um, just too much information being thrown in, in the beginning of, of that process. So that to this day, I still see after effects of that. Um, during tax season, we tend to volunteer to go to free tax sites, where if you're already getting free services for a 1040 for a tax form, that means that you're already in a bracket where you can qualify to also enroll for SNAP. So we do this like two for one thing where we go, 
we wait for folks to leave the tax, the free tax site, and then we ask them like, hey, if you got these forms done, you make under this certain bracket, we can help you enroll for SNAP. And every time it still happens where you're still kind of like getting the information across, letting them know like, hey, uh, things have changed. You can tell you can still apply for this. Like it's not going to hurt you. It's not going to damage you. Um, and folks are still hesitant uh, to go through with enrolling with services that uh, that, that really will go a long way. Um, that's one of the things I would say. Also, lack of information among young adults. College students uh, face huge uh, insecurity in food and people would not think about it. Um, but I myself was a college student, I was a first gen college student. I couldn't rely on asking my parents for money uh, when I was in college. So I had to work full time and I came here at the University of Iowa. And it wasn't until my junior year where I realized and someone shared with me almost kind of like on the down low, like to like be like, oh, yeah, actually, you know, I am, I am on food stamps and I qualify because I'm working um, X amount of hours and things like that. And uh, I realized, oh my gosh, this whole time uh, I could have applied for college food stamps as a college student. And I took advantage of it my junior and my senior year. Um, but even now when I come across college students and I know that they come from lower income backgrounds or they're first gen, I let them know like, hey, you can apply for this. Like, don't feel bad. Like this is a thing that exists. You shouldn't be worrying to pay for food. You're a student. <laughs> Your first uh, priority is to be a student. So a lot of it is uh, miscommunication around certain policies and who benefits for what um, around access to SNAP or, or, or just uh, programs that help support people with food, um, as well as I would say um, things that, that just impact them is just uh, a lot of families just work around the clock. And uh, Luke mentioned that in the beginning that um, some pantries are not open 24 hours, which I mean, we understand there's a capacity need to it, um, but just trying to strategize around what we can do to make sure folks can um, find someone or maybe deliveries is a great point where they might not be at home, but they can drop off the box if the kids are at home or things like that. Um, but those are some of the things that I would mention that have uh, that I've seen that has definitely impacted people to uh, receive uh, access to food. One thing I think that we are seeing right now, and this is happening all across the state, is food banks, food pantries are breaking records. And some of them are breaking, you know, 40 year records. And we just had our busiest August of all time. And some of the pantries that we worked with had their busiest month of all time period. And we fully expect that that will happen for our entire network in November. I think two things are really driving the increases right now. One, as everyone's aware of, food prices are higher. And so people maybe have a little less in their budget to dedicate to food. So they're turning to food pantries to kind of meet that. What I suspect is a much larger reason right now is in the state of Iowa, Beginning in April, people lost access to additional SNAP benefits that had been in place during the pandemic. So starting in April of 2020, everyone who received SNAP um, was able to get the maximum allowable benefit. There were some additional changes throughout the course of the pandemic. There was a temporary 15% increase, and then there was kind of a, that was replaced with a permanent about 25% increase. There was additional dollars for people who were already maybe receiving the maximum. That all went away in the state of Iowa in April as a result of the governor lifting the public health emergency. Starting in April, we have just seen demand skyrocket. Um, we were at like a 42% increase in April over the same month the previous year, and that's just been steadily increasing. In August, it was an 86% increase. In September, it's possible that we could double our numbers over last year. Because of that timeline, I think the, the drop in SNAP benefits is one of the major driving factors there. Um, but I do know there's states and other parts of the countries that still have those in place that are starting to see impact from higher food prices. I think I saw in the chat, we have some people joining from outside the state of Iowa. And this is something to keep in mind in your own state, because those emergency allotments will go away either when your state lifts their emergency declaration or when the federal government chooses to lift the emergency declaration. And there's some people that suspect that that could be going away kind of at the end of this year. And I think that will be you know, we're seeing it right now in Iowa. There's other states who are seeing it from ending that. 
I think it's we're going to have a nationwide crisis on our hands when that happens. If um, our policymakers aren't paying attention to that, um, so that I think is a huge thing. And then you know, along with the SNAP uh, expanded benefits, there's just a lot of other pandemic era programs that were really helping people that are now, you know, have have gone away. So whether that's the you know emergency rent and utilities. Um, you know, people got the stimulus checks that were helpful, the enhanced child tax credit payments, um, you know, have been shown that they reduce child poverty. And so all of those programs have, have gone away and we are really seeing so many more people turn to food pantries and a lot of new people too. We had close to 2000 people in the month of uh, August who had never used one of our food pantries before. I will just share a quick story because I, I can't add to that. You y'all are awesome <laughs> um, and really like covered it. But speaking of like seeing new people and to uh, Marlene's uh, point about even when you can, even when the resources are available, which they have largely gone away, a lot of things have gone away. People don't want to access them. Um, table to table is right next door to our biggest food bank in our county. And because we are a food distributor too, like sometimes people confuse us. We don't serve the public directly. We give food to agencies. So we'll get folks who come in. And a few weeks ago, I had a woman come in um, looking for the food bank and hadn't been there more than two minutes. And she was very upset about having to utilize, like we're looking for the food bank. So I went outside and we went to find it and she couldn't walk in because there is a lot of shame involved in accessing these resources. And again, you know, rethinking how we think about food is so important. Like, it is so shameful if you cannot provide for the basic needs of your family. And this particular person shared a little bit with me about if you are already on the edge, you know, poverty is a huge problem, but if you are already on the edge and now inflation has caused gas prices to go up and food prices to go up, any extra little bit that was getting you ahead that month is gone. And, and now, what do you do to like supplement that? And I just think that like, we think this crisis is over and it's almost worse. Like it is worse, like in a lot of ways, because a lot of what was available during the pandemic was helping the baseline issues of food insecurity and access to basic needs in our country, regardless of a crisis and should have been available all this time. Another example of, of even if you qualify is uh, when Luke talks about the maximum allowable benefit. So depending on your income, and some of you might know this already, but you get a certain amount depending on your income and your family and all of that. I don't know what it is exactly. So please don't quote me, but I, I know at some point it was $12. Like if you were qualified, you could get $12 in SNAP benefits. Um, and that's what you qualify for. If you understand anything about the process of dealing with the federal government on anything, I'm sorry, but like going through that process and then having to maintain it and prove that you deserve this money for $12 is like ridiculous. So, you know, those are just some like real world examples of what people are facing um, in these day to day decisions. And what happens if, if people can't access the resource or for many reasons won't um, and many good reasons is the decisions they are making is and then we look at like summertime childhood hunger, for example, kids, and I, again, I should have written my number down, but I think it's kids can go without as many as 10 meals a week during the summer because of a lack of access to food. And they'll just make that decision. Okay, kid, we're not going to have breakfast today. We're going to eat our lunch and we're going to eat our dinner, or we're going to supplement, you know, for whatever is cheapest and most available. Even if you're not hungry, it's really bad, like for your health and your body and the decisions people have to make. Um, so, yeah. I think you really nailed it, Nikki. You might have a slightly outdated number. Prior to the pandemic, it was actually $16. Okay, <laughs> no, no, I'm just joking. I was making a joke because it's still like, oh, yay, four more dollars. It was $16 prior to the pandemic. And then USDA last October had a whole announcement how it was kind of reformulating the thrifty food plan calculations and how this was gonna be a historic increase, which it was. But what that minimum benefit went to was from $16 to $20. So 
I work with a woman who prior to the pandemic, she was getting that minimum benefit, $16. During the pandemic with emergency allotments, she was getting $250 a month. She lives on a fixed income. She has a disability, a pretty rare genetic disorder, all sorts of health implications. During the pandemic, because of that money, she was able to actually fill her prescriptions routinely, make sure all her appointments were met and co-pays covered. And now she's back to $20 a month and is making those decisions again about, do I fill a prescription or do I buy food? And I think it has huge implications on people's health, uh, especially people with a disability or seniors. And one thing I, I wanna mention that I've been trying to bring up pretty often is while we have food banks and pantries that are breaking records across the state, the actual number of Iowans who are receiving SNAP benefits is at a 14-year low. Um, and I think you're right, Nikki. There's so many people we hear from anecdotally who say, it's just not worth my time and effort to apply if I'm only going to receive $20 a month or you know another small amount. Or, or maybe I make just too much to even be eligible for the program. So I think the state of Iowa and our federal government really needs to take a hard look at the SNAP eligibility requirements and benefit amounts, because we really proved during the pandemic that people can have their nutrition needs met when they have an adequate amount of benefits and don't need to use food pantries to meet their food needs. Wow. Thanks, guys. We did get a question in the Q&A, so I want to make sure we address that. So from your perspective or for information that you know, what is our governor, our state, or federal senators, House representatives, and members doing regarding the huge explosion of families accessing food pantries? Any of your expertise, if you could share, that would be fantastic. I'll try to be diplomatic. Um, <laughs> so the governor's response around the drop in benefits was essentially that there are jobs out there and people need to work which completely disregards the fact that two-thirds of people on SNAP are children, seniors, or people with a disability. And those who don't fall into the category are largely working, and they're not getting paid enough to make ends meet. I did see the state of Iowa a couple days ago announced that we will be um, issuing pandemic EBT benefits for um, households with children under six. I think that's a positive thing. Probably should have been done months ago. In terms of our state house, I'm a SNAP advocate. We've been fighting for five years against additional barriers and cuts to the program. I don't have high hopes that our state legislature will work to expand SNAP. We're certainly always pushing for that, increasing the income eligibility, investing in the Double Up Food Bucks program, which provides extra benefits if people are purchasing fresh fruits and vegetables. Next year, we have the farm bill discussions coming up. They they happen every five years, and SNAP is a big chunk of the farm bill. Um, So I encourage everyone, you know, this fall, next spring, if you get the chance to talk to any of our U.S. representatives or senators, really bring up the importance of SNAP, because that is going to be a big part of the discussion. I think there's going to be some kind of contentious pieces around SNAP in the farm bill. And ultimately we don't know how that is conversation is going to go until after the election and looking at kind of who holds chambers. So I guess I'm not super optimistic. (laughs) I don't know uh, uh, super in detail what the, at the, uh, at the state level, what I was doing around this specific uh, question, but I do want to encourage everyone on the call. I see that we have people from all over the nation uh, to look into wh- how the ARPA funds, so American Rescue Plan uh, money, is being used at the local level. That is where you have the most say to say, "Hey, we should really use some of this ARPA funding uh, to maybe we're going to do food and farm grants, or maybe we're going to use something." And it's very creative. This is taxpayer money that you can go into your city council at the county level and say hey, this is a problem. The purpose of this money is meant to provide relief from the pandemic. 
And this is clearly one of those needs where people need access to food. So uh, look into it, see if there's already something going on so that you could apply if you're an organization or a department to see how you can access some of those funds. Um, uh, there's just, I mean, it's a historic once in a lifetime that the federal government is even pouring so much money at the state and local level. We don't know the next time someone's gonna pull that lever again. Uh, and we wanna make sure that it's not just a one-time thing, but it's something that can create a sustainable actual infrastructure and not just like a one-time thing where we're gonna spend this money and not look back and see like, well, did we really invest in it? So now that I'm speaking on that, I do know for folks on the, on the, on the call that are from Iowa or Johnson County, that there is a community food and farm grant program uh, that has been leveraged uh, through some of these funds. And I can share more information with folks here that they can share it afterwards for anyone locally. Um, but this is just another great example of what you can do with some of those funds and how you can uh, close some of these food insecurity gaps. Um, another thing I do wanna shout out is uh, at least in the state of Iowa that I'm familiar with and things have not changed, uh, we're not doing our best to support local farmers um, and big ag buys up the land because it's so high per acre. It's ridiculous. How can someone maintain themselves and not sell out their farm? It also uh, increases the, uh, the price in food and just everything in general. And it's uh, harder to then have programs where you can have local farmer support or have uh, places where you can then uh, use some of the land to then grow certain food that uh, is necessary for wherever you are, are, are located at. Nikki, do you have anything else to add? Y'all got it. Good. Awesome. <laughs> I'm going to go on to our next question. What practices have you found to be the most successful in increasing access to healthy foods for those who need it most? You want me to lead? I don't know. I, um, it's it. hard. Table to table, table to table, like I said, we don't serve people directly. But one of the things that is really um, helpful for us is that we actually do have a system view um, you know, in Johnson County, at least, and are partnered with pretty much almost anybody who's trying to help solve this problem. And um, I'm just really proud of the work we do in Johnson County together. And, you know, it's not without its faults, of course, but um, how hard we work together on this. So I think from a, a, a system view, um, one of the things that I see uh, services doing is really understanding their customer and thinking about people as a customer of this service. Like uh, I, I, I do see partners really working toward a welcoming and non-judgmental environment for folks to come and access foods because your question is specifically about increasing access to healthy foods. But if you, you know, if you don't even, you can't even get people in the door because they don't know what they're going to expect or they're being judged by what they take, that's kind of like a, a bottom line issue of food access. And then of course, one of our folks locally, PJ, uh, who was formerly with Corville Pantry and now she's worked for, works for Johnson County. Um, uh, one of the things she talks about is uh, using grocery store science. And so uh, if, you, if your food pantry is designed like a grocery store, meaning people can choose things and you can lay it out in a way that puts healthy foods most accessible and, and ready and you have some resources and maybe how to use them, that's, it's open and available for people to take, but not forced upon folks. You know, in our grocery stores, what, where, what, what do they put in the aisles? Like, yeah, they put candy and stuff, but we have the opportunity to put things that are healthy and, and available if, if we can access those foods. Um, but they're expensive. And one of the things Table to Table does is tries to increase our produce and healthy proteins and, and dairy products because they're so hard to come by and because they're so much more expensive. So that's just something I've seen folks doing locally that I think is awesome. And obviously, Luke and Marlon, you, you see that in your work. So whatever else you can add. Nikki, I just want to one quick follow up before we move on with that same question for you, just so others may um, who may not know necessarily, you talk about that you're not necessarily a food pantry and you get food and share it with your local partners. Um, you mentioned briefly that you get food from possibly restaurants, but where else can you can you share with us where else does table to table get their food from? Well, and I can connect it back to this question. What practices have you found to be successful increasing access to healthy food? First is that it's available, like that you can even get it. So what we do is there is food waste in every aspect of the food system where really perfectly edible food is literally going to the landfill. And so what we do is we find the grocery store and we find the 
food processor and we find the warehouse that has this food and they're going to send it away and we make it happen so that we can go get it um, and get it to people who can eat it. So basically, I don't know, we have over a hundred partners in our community and actually that is possible in every single community. If your local organizations are having a hard time providing fresh produce and dairy and things like that, there is a place locally, a grocery store, a company, a restaurant that has food that's extra. Like they're not going to tell you that you're going to have to work to get that, you know, and convince them and all that do the work to get it. But it is there. And it is one of the most sustainable ways of accessing healthy foods because frankly, food waste is kind of here to stay. Like it's not going anywhere. Our entire system would have to be overhauled in order to make that not happen. So why don't we get it and get it to folks? So that explains our piece of that. Yeah. Anything else about healthy food access that I, I definitely only covered the where to level for sure. <laughs> well, and you also work with local um, producers, the people that grow food. So you guys have volunteers that also harvest food. So not only do you rely on organizations and warehouses and grocery stores, but you also work with local folks that grow food. So you have access to it to be able to share as well. So there's less food waste there. Okay. Uh, so back to the original question. Yes, go ahead. Uh, yeah, uh, no, this is uh, this is great. And uh, very similar to Nikki, LULAC works in partnership, so we don't have direct access to food. But uh, again, a lot of the times when you have great partnerships, uh, you're able, like Table to Table, like Core of a Food Pantry, you're able to then uh, serve uh, people's needs. But two examples that I've seen, one that uh, I've led with a, a group of entrepreneur women and the second one uh, just here locally. So the first one is commercial kitchens. So once you have access to the food through table to table, for example, through Nikki or through a local farmer, uh, the education behind then teaching folks how to cook certain meals. So LULAC has had a great partnership with an organization called Vegan Outreach, and I'm pretty sure they're national. So what we do is we work with uh, the organization LULAC to work and find local Latino uh, grocery stores. And oftentimes when you go to the grocery stores, we forget they're business owners. So they're running a business. They don't necessarily... And this is no shade, but they don't necessarily know that certain foods should not be refrigerated or if you place certain things here, it'll last longer so you don't have food waste, right? So we will work with those Latino grocery stores and say, hey, um, we want to expand your healthy options. And we have a truck from Vegan Outreach from California coming in a couple of weeks. How many of these uh, tons of food that's going to come in would you want to then provide in your grocery store? Then LULAC helps with the promotion around letting all the community members know like, hey, there's going to be a truck coming in. And we, and we get an advance from Vegan Outreach to certain items that are listed there. So then community members go and they get to shop at either a discounted or they even get a free groceries because we don't want it to go to waste. Again, we want to give it to people, but we have a relationship with the smaller markets um, because that tends to be where sometimes if there's no big grocery store, that's where people go and get all their food, right? So we want to expand what's in there, help them with education and how they can uh, keep certain things um, more sustainable and then have partnerships where people are then bringing in the food. Uh, we've also had examples with Table to Table, actually, with Nikki, where they would bring um, the refrigerated van to trailer home parks. So you're bringing the food to them. So we would let LULAC would then promote and let everyone know, like, hey, we're going to have um, milk, we're going to have bread, we're going to have like your basics. And then we would sit outside the trailer home park and people would come and they would just kind of peek out and be like, what are you guys doing here? Why are you here? And we have a sign and we're like, oh, this is free. Just come here and take it. And then they're like, oh, you know what? Thank you so much for coming here. Um, you know, let us know whenever you guys are back in town. And we've done that multiple times through LULAC and it's been really amazing. Um, the other thing too is there's a great organization local here in Iowa called uh, Sustainable Iowa Land Trust or SILT. And they work with community members uh, and it's, so, it's such a beautiful example. So they work with community members to uh, give them a, a, a good amount of piece of land. And they then tell the people, you get to grow whatever you want. Uh, we'll help you with, you have the land, we'll help you with whatever resources you need. And then throughout the whole year, you have community members. And a lot of them tend to be from like the local Center for Workers Justice or like uh, working class people, uh, lower income people who come, they tend the land, they grow what they want to grow. And then they get a chance to take the back to the community. And if they want to sell it, they can sell it and they can keep whatever they make from selling it. So um, this year, 
one of the things that I've uh, been doing with a group of other women is we're trying to do local markets or mercados, which are different than farmers markets because you can uh, try different cuisines and things like that. And we're trying to then get some of these people who are growing their own vegetables on this land to then bring those vegetables to different uh, sites like this, where then they can then either give it for free or sell it and give people more access to then having these different types of vegetables. And it's a win-win because we're talking about culturally relevant um, foods that they like. So they can then plant certain things that they don't see in the grocery store. And then they can let their community members know like, hey, we grew these things. And they're like, oh, I can't wait. And then they start uh, selling it amongst themselves or they start sharing it. And then more people want to get uh, on the land to then grow certain things and um, things like that. But those two examples um, have been uh, really, really uh, helpful for people to get more access to food. Another strategy that it's actually, it's not as complex, but it goes a long way. We noticed that with LULAC, a lot of the families that we deliver food boxes to, so LULAC serves as a mediator between the food bank and the home. Uh, a lot of times because they're working around the clock, uh, the food bank might not be open when they get off the clock. Kids are alone in the, in, in the house oftentimes. Uh, so LULAC to create trust, again, so that they can receive the services and not have that stigma, LULAC will then go and have all their information so that they also don't think that the food pantry is going to take their information and become public charge. So we are the ones, uh, the, the facilitator dropping off the food boxes. And we noticed that uh, just for context, around Derecho, we started with 12 families. Up to now, we still have 50 families. And so every week, we get an average of 16 to 20 boxes that we have to deliver with our volunteers. And we noticed that over half of the families that we deliver food boxes to are single mothers. And so when we said, okay, is there anything else aside from food that can really help you so that you can take your extra money and you don't have to spend it on, you know, hygiene products or maybe some things for the kids like baby formula or diapers, which are expensive, uh, everything's getting more expensive, that we can then find through food pantries or organizations that we can donate these to you in your box so that you have a little bit more at the end of your paycheck that you can then spend on other things that you might need. And we found that that was super helpful. So we would tell them uh, like laundry detergent, diapers, baby formula, um, other hygiene products that they might need. And so when they were donated in the box, uh, it really helped them to then take that little money that they would save and use it in other things. So that's a very small strategy of just working with the people that you're serving to try to see how can we make your dollar be stretched here. I would just add kind of from DMARC's perspective, um, we do have our mobile food pantry program that launched about six years ago. So that is really trying to get food into areas of high need and low access. We do ask um, people's addresses as part of our intake, which allows us to find areas that have really high need and low access. So low access to a grocery store or food pantry where we can bring that mobile pantry there. Um, also our delivery program, which launched during the pandemic, but we're continuing um, on indefinitely and are really trying to expand it right now, thanks to a partnership with DoorDash. Um, so we can have people call in, place a delivery order, and then we'll have um, that dropped off, just zero contact at their, at their doorstep. Um, we do have nutrition guidelines for the foods that we purchase. So if we get foods donated, they're maybe not the healthiest, they'll still go out to the pantries. But for the food that we're purchasing, we have some specific nutrition guidelines for non-perishables. That's things like um, fruit that's canned in juice rather than syrup, no salt added for products. But we really try to purchase a lot of fresh produce as well. A lot of that we're getting is not grown in the state of Iowa. There's a new program that's kind of just launching called the Local Food um, Purchasing Assistance Program. Sorry, I had to check. I know that it's LFPA is the is the acronym. Um, and that's to help food pantries, food banks, food rescue organizations, anti-hunger rescue or anti-hunger organizations, um, connect them with food that's locally grown. I think for like food banks and pantries, locally grown produce costs a little bit more and it's sometimes hard making that argument with board of directors and donors that we want to spend a little more and get less food but knowing that it's grown locally. I hope the LFPA program will kind of help bridge that gap and um, make it so that pantries and food banks and other organizations can purchase more locally grown food. And then one other thing I want to mention is, again, the Double Up Food Bucks program. Um, that's for people on SNAP. They can, if they're purchasing 
fresh fruits and vegetables, they can basically get a voucher for more SNAP benefits. And I think a really great example of how that's been implemented is at the um, Lutheran Services in Iowa uh, Global Greens Farm and Market here in Des Moines. Um, it's a program that works with immigrant and refugee farmers to access land and grow foods that they are most familiar with from their home countries. And their farmer's market has such a high redemption rate of double up food bucks. And it's, you know, growers essentially growing for their community and um, people can buy foods there that they can't buy at grocery stores. And so that program got some additional funding during the pandemic from some of these federal funds. And that's kind of been scaled back. So again, I think that's a, a program that could use more investment and could you know, help support our local growers while making sure there's uh, increased access to nutritious food. Great, thank you. We got another question in the Q&A. So how much of a factor is the lack of knowledge or ability or tools to prepare for meals? Um, examples could be a can opener, utensils, um, pans, potentially also recipes. What I found is a lot of times they want to learn how to cook meals that are not just high carb, high protein. So they want to know how can I integrate more uh, vegetables or healthy greens in my meal. And I'm going to be completely honest uh, with Lulac. When we first started the campaign with Vegan Outreach, we had a lot of backlash, actually, because people in the community were like, I'm not going to turn vegan. What is this? Like because of the name of the organization. And we told them our intention is not to convince you to be vegan. Our intention is to, through this organization, show you a variety of different vegetables that you might not be familiar with cooking with. And for example, we can teach you how to make uh, couscous or uh, cauliflower rice or other things to show them that uh, you can still incorporate a, a bit of protein, but if also connecting them to the food chain saying, uh, at least here in Iowa, we have a lot of meatpacking plants like Tyson, and they tend to work in a lot of these plants. So when COVID happened and they saw how they were not giving any type of break, they still had to be working while they were sick. And there was just a mess that happened in Iowa with the plants. I think it finally clicked with them to see the whole process of food, right? From when you cultivate it, you grow it till you sell it. And they realized that, you know what? I want to support some of these workers, so I'm going to try to eat a little bit less meat. That doesn't mean that they were going vegan, but they were just trying to be a little bit more conscious of incorporating other things into their diet. And so we had to have a conversation about it as Lulek and said, no, we're not saying that we are getting everyone to be vegan or supporters of just this way of eating, but we can really help out other things along the food chain if we try to eat more things that are maybe, you know, you have uh, different recipes where they can have no meat sometimes, and it could be still delicious, or you have lower portions of meat and then you can incorporate more things. So it was more around kind of like a cooking lesson class or learning how to cook certain things like Brussels sprouts or kale in a different way uh, that they were eager to learn, but they just didn't know how to prepare it. Um, so that was my experience with them in regards to food preparation and, and food meals. At DMARC, we do have a nutrition advisory committee and they create recipes um, for some things people may not be super familiar with. So we get like kohlrabi from the farmer's market and people are like, what do I do with this? We have those recipes available. I point to this study a lot, but USDA did a study last year on barriers to healthy eating for SNAP participants and actually found that lack of knowledge and lack of equipment rated relatively low compared to people not having enough money. So I'll, I'll put that in the chat, but it's, it's one I kind of point to a lot. I think that's, that is a legitimate question, but I think it's sometimes overstated. Oh yeah. And it's also, um, I think partly because that feels like something we can do and it's something funders want to fund like, because, oh, you're educating people. You're not buying food. Like, okay. You know, that's not, yes, of course we can all, but can't we all like, you're really, you're not asking the question of does the food insecure, the population of folks facing food insecurity need this education on cooking. And really it's a bigger question. Like, don't we, I think we all do. Like if, if we do, everybody does kind of thing. So we'll do one last question, 30 second um, responses. How's that? I'll give you a very quick and dirty um, response to time. So what role can local public health departments play in increasing the availability of food resources for members of their community? Scott County uh, Health Department has a model of a food rescue partnership. 
um, that I think is an awesome way that a, a public health organization is helping build connections between at food availability and people who need it. So that's awesome. And then um, I point to Iowa City's Love Food Fight Waste program um, because that actually goes a long way to extending the life of the food in your pantry. And that applies to everybody, people facing food insecurity and everybody else. Um, and it's just a better understanding of what do food dates mean and how can you still eat food and, and sort of our philosophies around what is good food. So I will share links to both of those things, but that's what I could think of. Wonderful. Another thing that I've seen um, health departments look at is some sort of uh, produce prescription program, um, working with county hospitals. I think that's something that could be looked at. I don't know if there's food insecurity kind of screening questions on an intake and some sort of referral system that could also be used. Um, but I, I, those are some things I've, I've seen here locally that I think have been done very well. Great. Yeah, I would just add um, finding programs like SILTS where you can let people uh, grow the food that they want and allow them to make income of it as well. And commercial kitchens. Uh, there's a lot of uh, food entrepreneurs and vendors that want to go out there and also introduce their inputs to other people and also make a living through it and do it sustainably. And uh, commercial kitchens is another way to do that and build community around food because that's really how uh, we tend to do a lot of this work. And it's, it's a positive note for everyone. Wonderful. Well, um, we're almost out of time. So again, thank you guys for taking time out of your incredibly busy schedules to share your expertise with us. Um, the next webinar, all of, obviously all of our webinars are on the second Wednesday of each month. And our next one is LGBTQIA and health equity practices. Again, thank you to all the participants. Thank you for the panelists. We appreciate your time and hope you guys have a wonderful day. Thank you for joining us today. Special thanks to Trisha Kitzman, Cynthia Maharani, Natalie Peters, Melissa Richland, and the speakers who have shared their expertise with us. Theme music for the Building Health Equity podcast series was composed and produced by Dave Hoeing and Roger Heilman. Funding for the Building Health Equity initiative is provided by the Iowa Department of Health and Human Services. Please see the podcast notes for an evaluation link and transcript. For additional resources and information, or to view the video webinar recordings, please be sure to visit www.buildinghealthequity.com.